Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 18 or 17, 8 through 16. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Please follow along with me as I read. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Claudia. I think she's one of the last of the Mohegans going off to college uh, this week. So we'll be praying for you and all of our college students that are there and all of our students. Uh, there are many of you in high school, junior high, grade school, and we pray for you as you uh, serve as a light in, in some very dark places at times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you. And this week is a test of our theology. <laughs> and for some, it's been an ongoing test as they maneuver with issues related to work, family matters, personal issues, what's happening globally. Lord, we need to be reminded, as we are in the book of Exodus, that you're the God who parts Red Seas. You're the God who brings down manna from heaven. And as we're going to see here in the latter part, or first part of 17, latter part of 17, is that you're the God who can fight the enemy. Guide us as we go to the text today. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to Exodus 17, the text that has just been read. Exodus 17, verse 8 we have been walking through the life of Moses. Next week will be our last Sunday in looking at Moses. And then we're going to resume our study of the Gospel of Luke. So take note of that as we wrap up our series. It's been a, it's been a good reminder, hasn't it? That this is a God we serve. He's not changed. And we're going to see the truths of that again here starting in verse 8 of chapter 17. Two weeks ago, I had the bright idea that I was going to prune the crab apple tree in our front yard. I had done it before, but there was a couple things I failed to consider. It was wet, 
<laughs> outside. Our front lawn is a pretty steep slope and uh, you know, a crab apple tree, it had been a while since I pruned it and that thing grows like a weed. There's limbs that grow out everywhere. Uh, so anyway, I decided, yep, I'm gonna do that. Josiah, our son, was shooting hoop near that area in the driveway. When all of a sudden, you know exactly what happened. That ladder gave way and I came crashing down to the ground. And I thought, forget that I just broke my ladder. I was concerned that some neighbor was gonna post this on America's Funniest Home Videos <laughs> and or YouTube. I was dying. And my son came running over and he goes, I think you need help, Dad. And I said, yeah, you think? What are you doing over there shooting hoop? This wouldn't have happened, right? You get that. This is a case in Exodus 17. Moses, yeah, he's had the sidekick Aaron, but for the first time we're gonna see others who step up to the plate and help good old Moses as he attempts to lead these people. And you'll notice there in verses eight and nine, Amalek or the Amalekites came and they attacked Israel and Rephidim. And you're going, this just came out of nowhere. You know, the internal issues have been what the Israelites have been facing, food, water, bitter water, all that we've seen. Now it's external. And it says, so Moses said to Joshua, and you're going, who's he? Obviously the reader, or the author, excuse me, assumes you, the reader, under, knows who he is. He's well known. We don't need an introduction to this man. It says, he, chose some, he says to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill, which they're at the foothills of Mount Sinai, with the rod of God in my hand. It's a strange account. I want to unpack this today so you can see what's going on. It's the first account of the Israelites going to battle, to war, that we'll see in the Old Testament. In fact, apart from Jericho and Ai, all of Israel's battles are defensive rather than offensive, which is intriguing. But they are attacked by Amalek, Amalekites, and you go, who is this guy? Well, let me give you a little background because this is vital to the story. He's one of the six sons of Eliphaz, in fact, he's the son of the concubine of Eliphaz, but more significant, he's the grandson of Esau. Esau and Jacob, you know, the, the story with the twins. This is the grandson. He's one of the chiefs of Edom. They, and his descendants, in fact, Balaam, in his deliverance, it recorded in Numbers, referred to Amalek as the first of the nations. It's a huge nomadic tribe that descends from Amalek. They're, they're known as pirates, and they, the, the territory they cover is vast. Because being nomadic, they take all of southern, south of Israel, down to the Negev, all the way over to Arabia, and they become a real thorn to, the Israel's, uh, to the Israel's history. If you recount, in fact, I wrote down a few texts, Judges 3, if you remember, the king of Moab, Eglon, recruits, pays um, Amorites and Amalekites to join him in attacking the Israelites. In Judges 6, the whole account of Gideon, the Amalekites join forces with the Midianites and attack the Israelites. In 1 Samuel 5, King Saul was told to annihilate the Amalekites. He refuses to do it, and Samuel ends up taking up the sword and kills the king of the Amalekites. Such a wonderful story. There is some wonder in it. There is some beauty in it. We talked about 
God ordering the, the death of the Canaanites and, and why that was the case a few sermons back. You might want to go look back at that text, but it's vital. And In 2 Samuel 1, Saul was eventually killed by Amalekite. Time and time again, this group, these parasites, these Amalekites, are referred and they're always seen as a thorn in Israel's side. It's not until King Hezekiah that they, they vanish off the scene, the Amalekites. And so here you see them, this is the first account, and the scene is horrific for several reasons. Yes, it's very brief in verse 8. In fact, it's interesting, the ancient historian Josephus, when he retells this story, takes over a thousand words to tell it. There's only like 91 words in the Hebrew account uh, because it's elevating Moses and showing God's deliverance. But why is this scene so horrific? Let me give you a few things to write down if you're taking notes. First of all, there's been nothing done by the Israelites to provoke their wrath, has there? They, it would appear that this nomadic group, I don't know, we don't know, were they threatened by the Israelites? And they're at Rephidim, which is an oasis, or they're concerned they're sucking all the water up and there'll be nothing left for them and their camels? Are they seeing, oh, these are easy pickings? Here's a chance to, you know, they got a lot of goods they've carried out of Egypt. This would be great. And so problem number one is there was no provocation from the part of the Israelites. The Amalekites come out and they attack. Secondly, what's really horrific in a Near Eastern culture is that this is family. These are distant cousins, the Amalekites. Remember, it's the grandson of Esau. It's the great-great-grandson of Abraham. And so it's kind of like the Italian family, right? You don't talk to the cousin like that. Uh, you're going to get yourself in trouble. This is the idea here in a Semitic culture. It's horrific. Of all people to attack, maybe the Egyptians, but the Amalekites, it can't get any lower. And so that indicates how horrific it is. First, the third is it's how the war was waged. It was dirty. The Amalekites were told, attack from the rear. You say, well, I don't see that in verse 8. You need to go to Deuteronomy 25. If you want, you can turn there. Deuteronomy 25 states the following. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way. You were faint and you were weary, and he tried to cut off the tail. Those, the text says, that were lagging behind who did not uh, these people did not fear God. And so we're told they went after the tail end. These nomadic pirates were going after those that were dragging behind in this caravan of Israelites. Psalm 83 says that Amalek's motive was genocidal. They sought to destroy the Israelites. They don't want this group going through their territory. And so, not only is it horrific because there was no provocation, secondly, their family, third, it's how you waged this war, and then fourth, we're told, according to Deuteronomy 25, the Amalekites did not fear the Lord. One rabbinic scholar declares that whereas other nations trembled when they heard what God had done to the Egyptians at the Red Sea, Amalek defeated God in choosing to attack, or defies God in choosing to attack the Israelites. And so here you have this event. Unannounced, they attack. Is the Lord surprised? 
No, we know our theology. He knew full well what was to transpire here at Rephidim. This place that you thought you're going to rest, the enemy's coming in the foothills. The Puritan writer Richard Sibb states, there can be no victory where there is no combat. Isn't that great? Just as the Lord knew about the Egyptians coming to the shores of the Red Sea, he knew about the Amalekites attacking near Rephidim. Jerry Bridges in his writing states, every adversity that comes across our path, whether large or small, is intended to help us grow in some way. If it were not beneficial, God would not have allowed it or sent it. For, and he quotes Lamentations 3, he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. God does not delight in our sufferings. Bridges goes on to state, he brings only that which is necessary, but he does not shrink from what will help us grow. The valleys, the attacks of the Amalekites in our life, well, it's an opportunity to be reminded that God keeps his promises. What did he tell the Israelites? I'm taking you to the promised land. You don't need to fear. And we're going to see here in a moment, it's the, one of the few times Moses shines. <laughs> we'll see that in a minute here. But it's an opportunity to see that God keeps his promises. It's an opportunity to experience God's grace and mercy. And third, it's an opportunity to have a front row seat on God's power in his deliverance. And so verse 8 tells us, very matter-of-factly, they were attacked. What happens in verse 9 is interesting. As we mentioned, Joshua, this, this apparent aid to Moses or assistant, and as we know, will take the mantle uh, in the leading of the Israelites after Moses passes away. His name means the Lord saves, which is so fitting in this event. The Jewish historian who wrote about this account later in the first century says of, of Joseph, he said there's five reasons why he was chosen by Moses in this text. First of all, he's a most courageous man. Secondly, he's excellent in enduring toil. Third, he's most capable in understanding, outstanding in speech, and most dutiful in worshiping God and making Moses his teacher of piety towards him. Certainly we see that elsewhere, don't we, in the life of Joseph, uh, Joshua, who, who is faithful to the task that God has given him. And so, what does Moses do? He doesn't do what he did in 17.4. Look at verse 17, 4 of verse 17. Moses cried out to the Lord, what do I do with this people? He didn't cry out, what do I do with the Amalekites? What do I, what do, I do here? No, it's the first, one of the first times that we see Moses immediately trusting the Lord and saying, this is what we're going to do. It's interesting in his instruction to Joshua when he says, choose some of our men to go out to war, it, it indicates they don't have an army, not at this moment, not the Israelites. So this is the first. And in fact, the term for them going out as warriors does not have the normal Hebrew modifier, which tells us they are not experienced warriors, even these guys that are being selected. Only they've been slaves in Egypt. They might be the, the brute squad, but do they really know how to hold a sword and how to fight? You're going against some very experienced warriors. In fact, they, they're riding tanks, they're riding camels, according to elsewhere in Scripture. That's how they fought as they came about. But 
the nuclear warhead is found in the latter part of verse 9. It says, tomorrow I will send, stand on top with, and there it is, the rod of God. Now, the rod is very significant in the Hebrew scriptures. First of all, the rod indicates that victory comes from the Lord, doesn't it? It's not Joshua's might. It's not this ragtag muffin soldiers that they've put together. It, it, it's what is significant, whether the victory is going to come, is from the Lord. And that rod symbolizes that victory. Later in Isaiah 10, the Lord is very upset with the Assyrians. <laughs> and he says, he will, the Lord states of himself, I will use the rod against the Assyrians as I did against the Egyptians. That rod is symbolic. The Lord is victorious, and he is going to take out the Amalekites just like he did those Egyptians. Secondly, the rod serves as a symbol of God's power and his presence. Where have we seen the rod thus far? Exodus 4. Remember Exodus 4? It says, and thou shalt take the rod. This is the Lord talking to Moses in your hand, and, and you will do wonderful signs. We saw it, it turning to a snake. We see it in several of the miracles. We see it when the rock is struck and water comes out. It is used to show God is in all of this. In other words, Israelites, you're not going to do this on your own. I don't care how good you are with a sword. You're going to need the Lord to defend you. It's interesting in later Jewish legends, rabbinic writings after the New Testament, it said the rod was said to have been created at the beginning of the world on the sixth day of creation and to have been passed down through the hands of the patriarchs and then inherited by Moses. <laughs> Interesting. What they're doing is just elevating this rod. Why? Because again, it, it, it's an indication that victory is going to come from the Lord. It indicates the power and presence. And third, the rod indicates to the Moses and the Israelites, you're dependent on the Lord. They all go hand in hand, isn't it? It's, it's not about your army that you have, Joshua. It's going to be the Lord. In fact, you're going to see that here in verses 10 through 13. And so let's look at this, verse 10. So Joshua fought against Amalek or the Amalekites just as Moses had instructed him. I love that. He's, he's obedient. And then we find another two individuals coming into the scene, Aaron and her, and you're going, I know Aaron, I don't know her. Her's grandson will become the chief architect, the builder for the tabernacle. Later we'll see this in Exodus 32. And according to the Jew, Jewish, well, Josephus in particular, he says that her will marry uh, Moses' sister, Miriam. We don't know, uh, that's tradition that's been brought down, but what we do know is that these two men play a pivotal role, and they do when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, just as he, he's about to depart. He says, now, if you need anything while I'm away, Aaron and her will take care of it. So whoever, whoever her is, I don't know, uh, but her and Aaron are responsible. And see what they do? Look what the text states. They went up to the top of the hill, second time that's mentioned, and whenever Moses would raise his hands, they held the ladder, right? <laughs> they held his arms up. They propped it up with stones to keep his hands lifted and that rod elevated. It's clear dependence upon others in the midst of spiritual conflict is important. We need the assistance of others. Paul said that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, we're to call 
for others to pray for us when we're undergoing persecution. Moses needed Aaron and her, and I would argue Aaron and her needed Moses. The Christian life isn't designed for Lone Rangers. I always get a little nervous when I meet believers who say, well, you know, I haven't been to church for a really long time. Ooh, careful. It's the bride of Christ. No church is perfect. But you need to be in fellowship with others. I, I wrote down, ingredients for spiritual failure includes isolation and self-reliance. Careful. I think of our, uh, even personally with the elder board, even this past week, one of the elders called and said, hey, I just want to encourage you, exhort you in an area. So you know what? I needed to hear that. Thank you. It, we're working together as an elder group and, and as collectively as a body, we come together and, and admonish and encourage and exhort one another so that we'd be able to withstand the battle. And here you see Aaron and her coming along Moses saying, let us help you. Moses couldn't have done it on his own. He has sent Joshua down to fight. He had to call men to help fight. And he needs these two guys, Aaron and Hur. There are a couple questions, though, that pop, don't they, in, as we read this text? I've always wondered, why is it, what is Moses doing raising two hands? Have you thought that? I mean, look what the text says. And whenever Moses would raise his, in verse 11, it says hands. It's not one hand. You're going, you must have the rod lifted up like this, I guess. All right? Because one, it was just he had the rod in the hand, and now we have both hands. And you go, what's going on? It's the Lord who, and elsewhere in the Scripture, Psalm 89, that talks about the Lord raises his mighty arm. He is the one who lifts his hands. So what is Moses doing here in this text? Scholars debate. Let me give you some interpretations that are common. One is that he is directing the forces against the Amalekites. It's kind of like that scene in the Lord of the Rings. You know, uh, slams the king against the back wall. It's awesome. Great scene. So this is the idea that he's commanding the arm of God as he's leading. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Another was that he's providing inspiration. The soldiers, as they're fighting the Israelites, they see him lifting up to the Lord, reminding, yes, the Lord is in this. So that's what some scholars would argue. Others argue, and I think this is probably what's happening, is that, that yes, there's inspiration. Yes, he's calling on the Lord. But really, it's an indication of prayer. Time and time again in the Old Testament, when both hands are lifted, and the text clearly is indicating it's plural, it's indicating that there is prayer involved in this process. Total dependence on the Lord. We even see that in Exodus uh, 9 earlier when Moses said, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord when he interacts with Pharaoh. One scholar who assumes that this is the interpretation writes, while Joshua engaged in physical combat, Moses engages in spiritual combat by raising hands of prayer over the conflict. And so here you have Moses. Yes, it's symbolic in, in many ways as those soldiers in the battle down in the valley are watching Moses stand or <laughs> lean on top of those rocks. But those hands lifted up is an indication he is praying. It also indicates God is going before us as we lead. But there's another question in this and, and, and that we see in this text. And notice it says in verse 12, when the hands of Moses become heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. And it says, 
that when his hands went down, and this is early in verse 11, the, the army, the Amalekites would, were winning. When his hands went back up, the Israelites were winning. And you go, why did the Israelites lose when Moses' hands were lowered? Have you wondered that? This is often a question I've asked in this text. It's so bizarre. First, we are, okay, we got the idea that he's praying with his hands lifted, but God's still present. He goes before them. The rod is there. So why should they lose when the hands come down? Again, scholars debate, which they love to do so they can write dissertations. But let me give you a few. Uh, it is an indication, I think, that Moses is no longer the sole leader of his people, of God's people. We see an expansion of, of leadership. And in fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 18, the father-in-law comes along Jethro and says to Moses, you can't keep doing this on your own. <laughs> you, got, you need an executive pastor. You need a worship pastor. You, need, you, know, you, got, you can't do this. Here, here, right? Uh, we, this, this, this expansion of the ministry, you, you're going to have to expand the team, the leadership. Secondly, it also displays, displays the frailty of humanity, doesn't it? We cannot do this on our own. It's another reminder to the Israelites and to Moses, this battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. What you are facing this week or what we are facing as a country, as we watch Christians suffering around the globe, it's a reminder, yeah, we cannot do this. <laughs> we are frail. We need the Lord's help. And that leads us to the third point, that we need to trust the Lord through prayer. I kind of wonder if, as Moses is holding the hands up, he's seeing things are, are getting a little bit better, and the Israelites are really, you know, they're taking care of those Amalekites. He says, okay, I'm going to rest for a second. It's a reminder, no, 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 we cannot rest. We're in a spiritual battle, Moses. You, you got to, it's the A game the entire way. I don't care if you're 80-some years old. Hold those arms up, right? This is important. And then finally, well, in that process is just understanding we cannot let down our guard. And so I think this is what's going on here. This back and forth in the battle based upon the hands. It's an indication, Moses, you can't do this anymore on your own. I'm, I'm transitioning here in leadership with the Israelites. Secondly, you are frail. You need me. And third, as we see here, we constantly need to be dependent on the Lord in prayer. Well, verse 13 concludes this whole battle scene with Joshua. It says he has destroyed Amalek and his army with the edge of the sword. The Hebrew term is, is very graphic. It says they inflicted crushing defeat. In other words, they annihilated the army. They won't annihilate all of the Amalekites. They weren't all there. And as we know, as we talked about, when we get to judges, they're right back, at a thorn in their side. But this current army that's attacked, Joshua annihilates him. And so then you come to the next scene, which is also very difficult to translate. And you look at this, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial. Okay, I have this. It's a reminder of all that God has done. And, and notice who is to do this. It says, write it in the book. It's the first time in scripture uh, we see a recording, put this in the book. But it says, and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing. Why Joshua? Well, you know, he certainly led the battle. It'd be great for him to, to reap some of the benefit. I think more so, this is the guy who's going to take charge over my people, Moses. 
I want you to start grooming him. He needs to be reminded and all of his subsequent leaders, those who take, uh, follow out in his footsteps, they need to be reminded that I, God speaking here, is in charge. I am the one who leads. I'm the one who gives victory. This reminder is so important because as we stated, the Amalekites proved to be a persistent problem in Israel's future. And it's so significant, this warning, that later in Deuteronomy 25, just as Moses is about to kick the bucket, he reminds them once again, don't forget the Amalekites. One scholar writes, as long as it, the Malachites, memory and spirit remain alive, Israel will never feel safe and secure. That's true, but I would also argue, as long as the Amalekites are there, you're going to be dependent on the Lord. You're not going to forget what God is doing and what he's done. Now, notice what the text says, for I will surely wipe out their remembrance. This is huge. What he is saying is there will be no offspring. There will be nothing left of the Amalekites and that command, that promise that God gives is not fulfilled until, as we stated, all the way until Hezekiah. But it's not just significant that they write it down and that Joshua hears it. Notice the text tells us Moses built an altar. We've seen this time and we will see it time and time again in the Old Testament. The altar served as a spiritual reminder of a sacred bond between the Lord and his people. You see it with Noah, don't you? Abraham and Jacob. The victory at Rephidim, the Lord wanted the Israelites to remember that he alone is one that brought them victory. Whenever they should come under attack, they should look to him. You know the sad part with this altar that's been built? It's only two years later that the Israelites will forget this. Two years later, they face the same people group, the Amalekites. And do you remember the story? Two years down the road in Numbers, God is so upset that he tells the Israelites, you're gonna wander for another 38 years. If you just learned your lesson, how about you? That's, that's not, human nature is so quick to forget, isn't it? In fact, I was just reading, people forget 50 to 80% of what, they're, what they learned in one day. Uh, it's more so for freshmen, but yes. Uh, people forget 50 to 80%, 97% after a month. What is worse, in the victories of life that God brings our way, it's so easy to forget, isn't it? D.L. Moody said one, we can stand affliction better than we can stand prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. This great victory, and they're moving to the promised land. They took care of the Amalekites. Two years later, when things get rough again and the Amalekites are back, they forget God. I mean, think about it. If you had a dear friend forget your birthday, it hurts. I didn't get a card. They didn't even send me a Facebook message. Well, this is a bummer. Think how the Lord feels when we forget what, we, what he has done for us. Hmm. Far more of a sting because he has given us salvation and eternal security through his son. He's paid the price for our sin. And like the Israelites, we can so quickly forget in the midst of the dark valleys, the battles of life. 
The text tells us in verse 16, and he said, well, look at verse 15. Moses builds this altar and says, the Lord is my, I love the pronoun there, the Lord is my banner. He's the one I exalt. He's the one that we raise and, and praise and all that he has done. And then in 16, it says, he says, for a hand was lifted up to the throne of the Lord that the Lord will have war with Amalek. This passage is one of the most difficult texts to translate in all of the book of Exodus. In fact, English versions vary. The King James in the New American Standard states, the Lord has sworn here, where it says, for a hand was lifted up to the throne of the Lord. They have the Lord has sworn by lifting up his hand. The problem is never, I would argue in scripture, do we see a hand being raised up to the throne of God as a means of an oath. The NIV has that hands were lifted up against the throne. In other words, there was hostility shown from the Amalekites and God's going to judge. That's the NIV rendering. But again, I don't think that fits here with the passage. The Revised Standard Version says the hand is on the standard. In other words, it's, it's a battle cry. It's holding fast. The ESV and the Net Bible have that the hand was lifted up to the throne of the Lord, or the, the hand was upon the throne of the Lord. And in this case, it's talking about intercession or the source of power. Uh, and so it's Moses' hand, it's the Israelites' hands that are looking to the Lord with their hands lifted up to the Lord, asking for help, for deliverance. And I think that fits best with the context also, Jewish, later Jewish writings, the Targum, also translate it accordingly as well. And also fits with Hebrews 4, where we approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. So it just seems to fit with the biblical theology is that, we're, that Moses is saying, I lift my hand to the Lord because this is where I find a source of strength. This is where I find deliverance. And so the Lord will have his war with Amalek. Notice whose war it is. It's not the Israelites. This is the Lord. He's been very gracious with the Amalekites. Don't tell me they didn't know. Esau, he knew what was true. He trained his children. They, they've wandered from the truth. They're the ones who attacked the Israelite God's people. And God says, this is my battle. It's not yours. Just move out of the way. Let me fight this. And it will be from generation to generation. You look at this text, you say, okay, Hophidus, that was great. I've not been to Rephidim. <laughs> it happened a long time ago in the Bronze Era. You know, really, what does that mean for us living in 2020 or 2021? I don't know what year we're in. Let me give you three principles. First of all, in your notes, as believers, we are part of a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces of evil. The incident of Rephidim is a reminder that our victory comes from the Lord. One of the major points of this whole account, it's interesting, Moses is mentioned five times at the beginning of the account. Yahweh is not mentioned until later on in the scene. What's it showing is ultimately Moses is inadequate. Joshua is inadequate. I mean, the army was forced back when the hands came down. Aaron and her, I mean, they needed stones. They too were inadequate. It's the Lord alone. Ultimately, there's no human hero in God's story except one, and that's the Lord. 
Hebrews 12 states, uh, chapter 11, if you remember, is the hall of faith. There's a laundry list of giants of the faith. And you get to 12 and it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's the one that we're to look to as we fight this battle. As we look up the hill, we're, we're not looking for the rod, we're looking for Christ. We're looking to him who goes before us. The writer of Hebrews states, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One pastor from the early 1900s, Alan Redpath writes, any battle for victory power and deliverance from ourselves and from sin, which is not based constantly upon the gazing and the beholding of the Lord Jesus with the heart and life lifted up to him is doomed to failure. That's who we look to in the midst of life. And, and, and that leads us to the second and that's prayer. Prayer is vital in the spiritual life. In prayer we acknowledge our absolute dependence on the one who gives us the victory. It's easy with a situation like Afghanistan, what else can you do but pray? The danger is when there's steps we think we can take before we pray, right? The one who goes before, it's not that prayer itself is the power, but the power resides with God as we depend upon the Holy Spirit. Just thinking through what is successful prayer, praying for victory. Let me give you four if you're taking notes. First, prayer that yields a victory is born out of a relationship with Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him, what does that mean? You've come to recognition, hey, I'm not perfect and I don't have a relationship with God. I, I, I need Christ who died on the cross for my sins and I wanna have a relationship with him. If you've not come to that point where you've bent your knee and accepted Christ as your Savior, you can pray all you want. You don't have a relationship with the Lord. <laughs> and until you pray that prayer, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, it's hollow. If you're sitting here this morning, I would love to show you how you can have this victory and be a part of the Israelite idea, you know, being a part of God's family. Secondly, prayer that yields a victory is centered upon the word of God. Scripture serves as our compass. It's what guides our prayer life, at least it should. What else makes prayer successful that yields a victory? It's based upon preparation. I love what one writer states. This says, the reason why many fail in battle is because they wait until the hour of battle. The reason why others succeed is because they've gained their victory on their knees long before the battle came. Anticipate your battles, fight them on your knees before temptation comes and you will have victory. It's a good reminder. Prayer that yields a victory, it's already, you've been doing it. <laughs> this isn't something new. And then finally, prayer that yields a victory should entail corporate prayer. I'm not saying that there's a room for private prayer, there is, and it's important, but praying with others is vital. Whether it's in a worship service, whether you're coming around, uh, what is it, 9.15 to pray with a group of 50 who are praying for this service, whether you're part of our prayer team, getting the prayer letter. Matthew 18 states, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with you. 
And so certainly corporate prayer is vital, just as it was vital to have Aaron and her alongside Moses in this victory that God was going to give to the Israelites. And finally, as believers, we can have confidence to approach the throne of the Lord for mercy and grace. Isn't it awesome that Aaron can say, or Moses can say to Aaron, don't worry, I got the rod. God is with us. And we can say that as believers. We have a relationship with the Lord, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to come to the throne room. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Your present situation, and some of you have shared with me the valleys you're walking through, might seem a whole lot like you're fighting alongside those Amalekites. <laughs> or along the Israelites fighting the Amalekites. The enemy is terrifying. The situation is desperate. The need is overwhelming. And the battle, it's relentless. But there's two very significant words that we see time and time in Scripture and that is, but God, we are victorious, right? The enemy, the situation, the need, the battle might seem overwhelming, just as those Amalekites were to the Israelites. And yet we look to the Lord, the great victor, the one who has promised to go before us to fight the battle. He alone is victorious. Father, it's a powerful scene. unprovoked the Israelites are attacked from the rear from a nomadic pirate group that undoubtedly had instilled fear throughout this region and the Israelites this is foreign territory they've got the elderly they have children to care for and they are not warriors they've not they don't have the camels they don't they don't have the wherewithal to withstand and yet they go to battle because they know you go before them and Father, we as a people are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians talks about this. The enemy seems to be winning the day on social issues within our land. Believers across the globe are suffering. And for many, the personal battles or family members that they're dealing with is also daunting. We thank you that you go before us. We thank you that we can come to your very presence to find mercy and grace. And we thank you that this is your battle. And we lay it all at your feet. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.